The Forum on Workplace Inclusion's 2021 podcast series is sponsored by Best Buy. More diversity in tech means more ideas that can change the world. Learn more at bestbuy.com slash more of this. If you enjoy the Forum podcast, check out our interactive webinar series, which returns this April. Learn more about April's webinar and register at forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash webinar. Registration is free. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast, Ally for Gender Equity, a case study with presenters Maloney Thakrar of Mind the Gap, Inc. and David Arulia of Open Teams. This podcast is sponsored by Best Buy. I'm Ben Rue, Program Associate here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. In 2018, David Arulia began working at a high-growth startup. Within a month of working there, he learns that a former employee was sexually harassed by the company's CEO. After expressing his disappointment, with the company's inadequate response to the sexual misconduct, Arulia is abruptly fired three days later. During this session, Ms. Thakrar interviews Arulia to unpack what it means to be an ally for gender equity in the workplace, why sexism pervades the tech industry, and how companies and their leaders can cultivate a culture of trust and allyship. It offers recommendations for high-growth startups so they can cultivate a culture of trust and accountability, one that operationalizes the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. This session draws from a case study authored by Ms. Thakrar and builds on a former presentation at our 2019 conference entitled Redefining Masculinity and Leadership. This podcast will help you develop a more nuanced understanding of defining ally as a verb in the workplace, learn strategies on how to be an effective ally in the workplace, and gain insight into how companies can build workplace cultures that cultivate allyship and trust. Maloney Thakrar is the founder and principal of Mind the Gap, Inc., a strategy firm that leverages data storytelling to advance gender equity in the workplace. Her practice centers around one key principle. We cannot achieve gender equity without addressing the inequities perpetuated by research and data. As a strategist, researcher, and data storyteller, her firm partners with organizations to translate data into insights and drive impact. Ms. Thakrar holds a Master of Science in Gender and Social Policy from the London School of Economics and a Master of Public Policy from Australian National University. She currently serves on the advisory board of the Africa Diversity and Inclusion Center, the City of Chicago's status of women and girls working group the women tech founders leadership council and as a member of the center for global inclusion as a daughter of immigrants who studied and lived in four foreign countries she brings a global and culturally responsive lens to her work david arulia trained as an applied mathematician and computer scientist and is currently the director of education at quonsite llc 
He was a university professor at Ontario Tech University for 11 years before leaving academia to become director of training at Anaconda, Inc. He holds a PhD from the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, it's really been truly an honor to be part of the Forum on Workplace Inclusion community. Um, I've always been greatly impressed with the work and the content that it puts out into the world. Um, I clearly see them as thought leaders as who have been able to create an intentional community of leaders um, focusing on workplace inclusion. So it's been an honor to be here. Um, and I um, also feel honored to have David here to share his story, um, who um, will be speaking shortly. Um, but I wanted to start out um, my name's Maloney. Uh, I am the founder and principal of Mind the Gender Gap, which really focuses on um, building strategies using um, data storytelling um, to advance gender equity in the workplace. So this story um, that focuses on a tech startup and uh, has been a story that has been a long time um, uh, coming. It's a story that has been unfolding and continues to unfold for a while now. Um, when I first connected back uh, with uh, connected with David back in 2019, um, David, I remember distinctly uh, you sharing your story with me for the first time, and thinking back of how um, you were still in the midst of processing all that happened to you. And it wasn't several months later until we connected that um, we, we revisited your story. And I saw, uh, I felt as if I was talking to a different person altogether. Um, everything from the tenor of your voice to your facial expressions to where you're at with your um, processing, you just, your demeanor was much more calmer and brighter. Um, so with, with that said, uh, I really wanted to start out with what ultimately, uh, first, you know, feel free to introduce yourself, but what ultimately led you to um, make the decision to share, share your story um, in your experience in a more public way? Um, so thank you, Maloney, and, and thank you, Ben, and uh, everyone involved with the forum for uh, inviting me here. So yeah, so my name is David. I'm a um, computer scientist, uh, applied mathematician, uh, former academic, now working in industry. Um, so uh, I, I guess I've spent a lot of time, uh, I mean, I think uh, speaking to the, what you just said, Maloney, I mean, in uh, I originally was fired from this company in June of 2018, and I'll talk more about that later. Uh, so it was a good uh, nine months after that when I spoke to you in April of 2019, when the story had resurfaced uh, and I had thought it had, had gone away and I kind of had been um, re-traumatized by that, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And that happened to a number of people actually involved with this company and, uh, and their experiences dealing with them. Uh, and that happened again uh, recently in the summer of 2020. And it seems to happen sort of whenever they, they enter a new news cycle. So I think when I've thought about what um, about speaking about this, talking about it, there are a number of risks involved. I mean, one of the things is, of course, I'm talking about issues relating to um, gender inequality and um, sexual harassment, and and I'm I'm cautious of the 
appearance of being, you know, a, a, a fellow man explaining about these things and taking up space where a woman could be speaking. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also uh, cautious the story relates to um, this unfortunate woman who was a target of sexual harassment at this company. Um, and uh, initially I was quiet about it because um, it, it was very, I did not want to out her and there were a lot of uh, concerns about re-traumatizing her and the, her experience there. Um, another risk to me is also, of course, playing into this narrative of the bitter ex-employee. Um, so I don't want to play into that narrative. And, uh, you know, I know that there are within the company, there are doubtless the leadership and the people who have a vested interest in believing that narrative about me uh, is fine. But everywhere outside, it seems that isn't a problem. So, um, but there is a risk also of some kind of legal retaliation. You know, they have uh, threatened to sue people for defamation in the past. They have done so for me uh, privately and publicly. And, uh, and you know, they are definitely punching down and I'm punching up in that, this circumstance. They're a company with um, millions of dollars of VC resources behind them. And I'm a private individual. Um, and uh, there is, you know, some people would also argue that um, talking about these kinds of things risks, one risks their opportunities for employment because nobody likes uh, whistleblowers, nobody likes people that speak out about these things. Um, that's the, the converse of my experience, and I'll explain more about that later. Uh, um, so on I, the wanted to, I wanted to pause right there regarding your point on retaliation, um, because I, I when people think about um, workplace inequities and inequalities and, and discrimination overall, um, I think not enough attention is given to the retaliation piece. Quite often you see um, the response for employers is that retaliation is illegal and we don't do it, um, which I believe at some point was the response from um, this particular employer as well. Um, but when looking at the data, retaliation by far is the um, makes up the largest percentage of complaints filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. In fact, um, just in 2019, which is the most recent data available, like over half of the complaints that were made um, focused on retaliation. So I just wanted to underscore that point. Um, would you um, continue? Yeah, thanks, McCormick. Um, I mean, on the on the other hand, I guess uh, the the main reason for me to to talk about this is because I mean, I think unequivocally, sexual harassment is wrong. Um, I can say that with conviction. I don't believe any of the leadership of this company can say that with conviction because it contradicts all of the decisions that they have made um, around this issue over the last uh, three or four years. Um, and I think it's vital to say this strongly, decisively, and with conviction. Um, this should have been an easy case. Uh, what happened was witnessed by other people within the company. Um, and this, what is frustrating about this particular case is uh, there was, you know, the, the CEO of the company sort of uh, sexually harassed this woman outside of the out, and she ended up resigning very shortly afterwards. Um, and they should have disciplined him very strongly after the fact, and they didn't. And uh, if we as a society can't deal with straightforward cases like this really easily, I mean, most sexual harassment occurs um, in private behind closed doors. And when it occurs like this, uh, we ought to be able to deal with those cases easily. Um, otherwise, we won't get the complicated ones right. 
Um, and I think there's a very strong responsibility for men to use their voices and speak out. Um, I am a, uh, I'm, I'm a person of color, but I'm still a man. I'm uh, cisgender, able-bodied. I've got all sorts of uh, privilege. I've, I've uh, not a young person either. I've uh, got an established professional career. And so it's really important that I use the privilege that I have to speak out against the status quo when you have really bad behavior at companies like this. So given all that, what are you hoping um, the audience will gain from hearing your story? Um, I'll talk, I'll answer this more fully sort of closer to the end, but I think on a high level, I, you know, I kind of want, you know, I've now moved on. I'm um, uh, SVP of education and inclusion at a company called Open Teams. I've uh, uh, did, I did, I worked afterwards as a consultant, um, but I've, I think that companies kind of have to figure out how to deal with these situations properly. Um, you know, cultures of silence and uh, um, inequality, power imbalances get perpetuated in workplaces and, and in order to generate cultures of inclusion and trust, you have to actually do the work that's required. So I think organizational leaders have to recognize that and take accountability and act with a sense of integrity and humility in order to build that with people. Um, and I also want to sort of use the experience I've had, I think was, it's really bananas. This is uh, without doubt in uh, almost 30 years as a, an adult, um, working in various, working as a university professor, working in industry, um, I've never encountered such a ridiculous uh, leadership and such um, utter amateurish, childish incompetence. And I think it's really important to uh, recognize that we have opportunities to stand up for the things we believe in and to do so consistently and aligned with our values. And, and I think it's, I think there's some interesting things I've learned. I've learned about dealing with lawyers and non-disparagement agreements in ways I never thought, I, I never dreamed of in my career uh, before. So, um, but we do things, you know, we get to choose the people that we want to be through our actions and through our decisions. And I really want to sort of share this story to help people sort of see that. Yeah, your your last point really gets at the core of what this this story and this podcast is about, um, and what it means to be an ally in the workplace. Um, that term gets used maybe all too often, but really this emphasis on action and consistent action um, that is within a strong alignment with values, I think is um, critical to underscore and highlight in the story, which will uh, be a re-emerging theme as we um, discuss this story in more detail. So one of the detail, uh, details about this story that really stood out to me um, was um, that this company uh, sort of reached out to you and proactive recruited you and tried to court you to join their company. And so can you talk about um, sort of your initial impressions of this company and, and why you ultimately decided to join it, join this company? Sure. Um, I'm <clears throat> so I first started collaborating with uh, Daycamp. I, I will, I'll mention them by name. We haven't done that so far, but I don't think it's any secret. Um, in 2016, when I was working at another company called Anaconda, and we made they make uh, online data science courses. Uh, through, and these are I 
uh, helped create with the, I was at that time director of training at Anaconda and I helped create um, about four or five different courses in the course of 2016, 2017 that were quite successful. They had about half a million completions and uh, I didn't get any royalties for these Anaconda Godolas, which is fine. Um, I was an employee of theirs at the moment and uh, they were made with uh, the training team and it was a really interesting technology and on the basis of the success and the popularity I had as an instructor working with the, with DataCamp, um, you know, I made friends with a number of people inside the company. I had uh, a good friend and colleague, uh, Greg Wilson, who had started working there in um, sometime, I think, in 2017. And the number, they had a lot of very talented young people. Um, and although I was happy at Anaconda, um, the business model was shifting. It looked like I, they were going to be moving away from training as part of their core business. And, uh, and so, you know, Datacamp contacted me around the summer, I think June or July of 2017. And, had, and again, in December of 2017, sort of asking if I was had any interest and, uh, and they pitched to me and I, I flew there in January, 2018 for an interview. And after some, some thoughts back and forth about the opportunities there. I, I decided this was be kind of uh, an interesting place to go. Um, so uh, yeah, that was kind of unusual though. Like they were quite aggressive in, in uh, courting me. I'd actually risked their relationship with their business, with the Anaconda, which is one of their business parties, partners because I was technically I was poached. Um, so, um... So jumping to you are now have joined the company. Um, at what point did you begin to notice the signs or indicators that the company culture was uh, problematic or at times that you've described as toxic? You know, it's really funny thinking about this because I think back and there were warning signs before I joined. Um, I think so, for instance, in um, August of 2017, the, the CEO, Jonathan Cornelis, and I heard this through uh, people I knew inside the company. Um, he shared James Damore's uh, Google um, manifesto, uh, you know, the rubbishing DEI, right? That was rubbishing uh, the ideas of um, all of the gender and uh, uh, the work, the efforts to try and improve things for women in technology, for instance. And, uh, and the CEO of DataCamp sort of broadcast this inside this internal slack to the company and I knew people inside the company who were upset about that um, and I, I kind of you know and I should have taken that as a red as a red flag but I, I you know I kind of thought well you know you don't always going to agree with the boss and maybe those things are aren't um, you know at the same time I sort of saw that there were things that they were doing that were interesting I was intrigued by the company um, but I think the second sign start I didn't actually start there until April of 2018 um, and when I when I started, I uh, joined the curriculum team, and I was uh, there were two women who had been on the curriculum team um, who had left. Uh, one had been fired, and the other one was unfortunately this woman who had been a target of harassment, and who had, uh, in in I think October of 2017, and who quit in January of 2018 uh, in response to that. And I didn't learn all of the details around this until later, but. Um, I couldn't get a straight answer about why uh, the one woman was fired and I had sort of inherited her workload as long as the other as well as the other woman. Um, and they were in fact actually in as I was piecing together I sort of noticed that looking at the 
the uh, unfinished projects in the curriculum team, there were a lot of turnover. There was a lot of turnover in 27 and 2018, even before the, the story exploded in 2019, they actually had a lot of people leave the company as well. Um, and there was no discernible uh, HR department at that time. Now I knew that they were in the process of hiring. I think in um, at the beginning of June, 2018 was, uh, you know, two months after I started was when they finally hired a director of people uh, and she had started. So, uh, but I, I mean, I didn't really get a, a good sense of how, uh, you know, of how they managed things. And it really seemed like a lot of stuff was sort of done. Like it had a lot of startups sort of at the last minute. Um, uh, I guess I was uh, the curriculum team director, uh, you know, the, the, my manager, there was, you know, I was, there were difficulties I, I had dealing with her and, I, and you know, there were, uh, KPIs and OKRs, right? Key performance indicators and objectives and key results. And, and the way that these were negotiated was really uh, set in a way to ensure failure. And I, and, and this was kind of a, it was kind of, I was reluctant to see this because I really wanted to get along with her and I really wanted to, um, um, I've, I kind of felt sorry for her sort of being one of the few women in a, you know, one of seven or eight women in a company of 70 people. And I really wanted to uh, get along, but in hindsight, I think there was pressure from above to to produce, and and the whole management style that was encouraged at the company was one of pitting people against each other. You know, uh, I, I mean, another sign, I guess, really, it was at the company work we did at the start of May 2018, a month after I'd been at the company, that I really that's when I found out about uh, the harassment incident from October 2017 and about the woman leaving the company. Um, uh, it was really, you know, a, a week after that company work week, um, another woman had been fired who had only been at the company a month and a half or maybe two months. She was hired around the time I started. Uh, and I don't know what she, what that happened, but it, what that was about. Um, but it really, you know, there was a lot of uh, really, it, I mean, and it struck me like this is really kind of cutthroat. It's really um, a very negative place to be. You know, the whole three years I had been at Anaconda, I think there was one time I think where a person had been fired and it was a problematic situation. But I mean, they had already been two people, you know, and in the first half of 2018, you know, including myself and Greg Wilson, who were fired on the same day shortly afterwards, uh, there were four people fired in a company of about 70. And, and to me, that doesn't really reflect that. You know, I've been a manager in industry. I've been a supervisor of graduate students. I've had uh, managerial responsibilities. Um, when you're doing things in that way, that really doesn't reflect a, a, a competent management style, in my opinion. So uh, I wanted to touch on um, some of the key points you just highlighted here. But before I do so, I just wanted to, to get a sense of what percentage of the workforce were um, women or identify as female to your to your recollection um and i wanted to just i was curious about this because you you had mentioned a few um terminations involving women oh yeah no there was about i think it was about seven or eight out of about 70 to 80 people so less than about 10 percent at most um it was pretty small uh at the time and it, it it changed a little bit in that time and i think that it's probably better now but i'm not sure that that's um that's necessarily a good sign. I'll, I'll elucidate on that later. So uh, given sort of that context, as well as many of the signs you just sort of highlighted it in, in many ways, um, as someone who's worked with a lot of tech startups, it's sort of, 
characterizes um, a lot of uh, the uh, the culture that pervades in the tech startup and I'd say in the broader tech startup ecosystem. Um, one of the things you noted was the sort of lack of infrastructure around HR and even having a staff person focusing on HR. It's not uncommon for um, hyper uh, like early stage startups that are trying to grow and scale as quickly as possible to not invest in those types of things until much later on. Um, the other thing is this emphasis on like competition and uh, working at all costs, um, as well as like um, just these other uh, underpinnings that sort of point to um, a culture that where women are underrepresented um, overall. Um, and that is again, um, fairly common to tech startups. So just going back to the offsite, um, the company work week in um, May 2018, you mentioned you had found out what happened um, prior to you joining the company. Um, can you talk a, a little bit more about what you learned and how um, you responded when you learned about this newly disclosed information? Yeah, what I learned was that this this woman had um, had left after um, you know basically being um, being harassed in in front of witnesses at the previous uh, work week and uh, and the company sort of tried to has used various euphemisms to describe this they've called it inappropriate dancing and there's this there's this kind of nauseating conversation around what ex you know where this lies in this. A spectrum of different levels of sexual misconduct, but I think the important thing is, um, to me, it was it was awful uh, when I found out what had happened because I, uh, the most appropriate metaphor I had in my mind at the time was it's like a toxic oil spill, right? Like you can talk about how you deal with things if there's a if the oil pipeline breaks, but then once it breaks and you've got all the wildlife around you sort of drowning in toxic sludge. Uh, and trying to clean it up, it's just a total mess. And that's the way I felt in this company. Um, and I had thought about this scenario very much when I used to be a professor, theoretically, right? Like how would I respond if I found out one of my uh, academic colleagues or one of the graduate students in our department had um, committed some uh, act of um, sexual, um, sexual violence. Um, and what would I do? Would I have the courage to actually, you know, speak up about this against one of my other colleagues? Uh, um, I fully believe that if I had uh, behaved the way that the CEO had behaved, you know, if I had had a student in one of my classes um, after being, um, you know, inappropriately uh, harassed in front of other students in the group, if she then dropped out of the class and dropped out of the program, what are the rest of the students to think? How does how is this actually to affect the integrity of the program? And I fully expect that I should be um, disciplined. I should be fired and have tenure stripped um, if I had done something like that. And and I think this is um, really frustrating. It was very uh, you know I I had a tenured academic position. I left academia because I couldn't reconcile um, the conflicts inside academia with my own sense of conscience. And then I had left this company, which I felt was an honorable, decent company where I actually respected the leadership. Um, so when I was now in this company, realizing that the leadership were this were these selfish uh, individuals who were uh, determined to 
um, pursue profit at the expense of the well-being of their staff. Um, it really, uh, it was awful. I was losing sleep. I couldn't discuss this with my, you know, with my wife. I was really trying to, I was carrying this all on my own and I was conflicted about my loyalty to my employer versus my principles. Like I knew that I wasn't going to lie to protect the sleazy con conduct of some pathetic dude up at the top. Um, but I also didn't know who to trust within the organization. And I found out later that I couldn't, certainly couldn't trust uh, the, the director of the, the, of the curriculum team. Um, and I wasn't sure who else I could trust within the curriculum team uh, or who else inside the company. So it was a really um, stressful and unpleasant experience. So when, um, when thinking, going back to when you sort of clearly expressed where you stood with your values and um, your concerns about the company and the company culture, and particularly um, about what you had learned while you were on this offsite during the company work week. Um, can you talk about how the company responded and what unfolded at that time? Sure. Let me, uh, so just as a little background, uh, let me see. Uh, so this was around the middle of June 2018, after I'd been at the company uh, two months and one half. Uh, so I had a you know minor blowout with the curriculum director, um, and uh, so I decided at the uh, 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 that the next meeting we had to say like, look, I've got to come clean with you. If I'm going to stay here at this company, I can't, um, you know, I I had to disclose what I knew about the the harassment that the CEO committed in front of witnesses, and um, and I thought that the the way that it had been dealt with, uh, it was basically a slap on the wrist and it's established two very bad precedents. And I've said this to her in, in verbally at the time and uh, I've said it in writing after the fact that it established the precedent that sexual harassment is okay at this company. It's not gonna be dealt with seriously. And it also sets the precedent that the leadership are untouchable. They can break the law with impunity. And these are both things that they have never to this day uh, responded to adequately. Um, so I requested at the time, this was June the 12th, uh, 2018, I requested uh, a discussion at the next curriculum committee meeting because, and I requested this in good faith uh, because I was, had inherited the workload of the woman who had left. Um, I had, and I was, had real business relationships with external instructors who, uh, business partners of the company, uh, and I'm not, wasn't prepared to lie about what happened to them if they asked me. And, uh, and I wanted to discuss this with the curriculum team. And they made sure three days later that I was fired, that I didn't go to that next curriculum committee, committee meeting the following Monday. Um, and um, and that, this annoys me a little bit because I think the narrative I've got in my discussions with them since is that somehow or other this was me trying to sort of uh, strong arm, you know, from my position of weakness that uh, this was like, I know where the bodies are buried. Uh, and that it was sort of making excuses and trying to um, rescue myself versus actually trying to say, no, I mean, I'm fully within my rights in trying to do the job that I've been hired to do well, um, to request uh, clarification and, and grown-up discussion about this mishandling of uh, this terrible situation by the company's leadership. Um, and that was a perfectly good faith action on my part. And I, I resent um, my professionalism being criticized by cowards who clearly don't have any um, competence in dealing with sexual harassment. So, um, 
yeah, so I was uh, terminated three days later. I had a, a meeting um, on June 15th, 2018, uh, which was the only time I met the head of people. She had only been hired about a week or two before. Uh, and she showed up on, and I was working remotely from Vancouver, not in New York, where the company headquarters was. So I had a, um, a video a phone call, I guess, with her, uh, or actually, I think it was a video call, um, where the, um, uh, the director of curriculum and the head of people showed up, and I was told that I was being let go. Uh, I, my first thought when I saw the director of people there is that, oh, I'm getting my director's my wrist slapped. And, um, but no, it actually turned out that, the, and I was shocked. I didn't think like, this is ridiculous. Um, they can't fire me three days after I've told them. Uh, I've complained about their handling of sexual harassment and clearly they thought that this was a good idea. So um, they offered me half pants pay as severance and an additional half month to sign a non-disparagement agreement. So I kept my mouth shut during the call. I was pretty angry, but I just thought, okay, I'm not gonna say anything while I'm this angry. I just wanna find out what's going on. Uh, I had been locked out of Slack, which was the mechanism of communication inside the company. And I was instructed not to make any contact with the rest of the staff. Uh, I found out that Greg Wilson, my colleague and friend who was also fired the same day, he was also someone who was vocally critical of the uh, company's handling of this situation. Um, and uh, they fired us both on that same, on that same day. Um, and they apparently made an announcement to the staff and they, they lied and told us that uh, they had offered us uh, from what I heard from other people inside the company, they, they had been told that Greg and I had been offered an opportunity to write a goodbye email to the company and we refused. And that's not true. We actually were told explicitly not to make contact with, with staff. Um, and I think this actually was a very clear um, FU, right? It was a clear message sent to staff about power, about keeping your mouth shut. Um, so either... Um, uh, so... Anyway, so I followed up on this afterwards. I, I looked at um, legal options and found out the rules of uh, at-will employment and some of the jurisdictional issues because I'm, I was a Canadian uh, contractor working remote from Vancouver, not working in, in New York. Um, and and I, I looked at their very one-sided non-disparagement agreement and I said, like, this is ridiculous. I'm not signing this and certainly not for a half month's salary. I might consider signing it for a year's salary. Um, uh, I mean, I assumed that they might actually consider that, you know, I have bills to pay. Some people consider that that um, uh, refutes my moral position and I, I don't happen to agree with that. I've got, uh, I've got bills to pay and I think that you know, if they want to, I have a right to choose the price of my own silence. Um, and if they, and my biggest mistake was actually assuming the, the overestimating the competence and maturity of the leadership. I thought that, you know, this is at this point just a business decision. Like if they don't want, if they really want uh, me to uh, be quiet about um, their negligence, then they need to recognize that um, I have the right to set the price of that. And I thought I was being very reasonable. Um, you know, this was uh, a kind of an infuriating experience. Uh, it was, um, but, you know, I found other employment options quickly. I've, uh, I've got a lot of work experience. I have, um, you know, I was a little bit cross about the lies they told internally, and I kind of resent my professional being, professionalism being impugned by, um, um, by schoolyard bullies. But, um, you know, I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not at all uh, bothered about any of the way that I behaved. I think that I behaved consistently with uh, integrity, uh, which they can't claim. So, 
So there's a couple of things that strike me when I'm hearing you recount um, how this story uh, unfolded. Um, one was that the employer uh, was definitely wielding and, and the leadership team was wielding a lot of power and, exert, and abusing that power in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the ways that um, is a continuing theme in the story is the employer controlling the narrative. Um, and um, in essence was um, engaging in bullying behavior, um, everything from shutting you down, from uh, locking you out of Slack, to um, telling a different story or their version of the story to the, the rest of the workforce, um, to issuing a non-disparaging agreement, um, which is very common for a lot of employers as a way to um, really control the narrative. Oh, yeah. um, and the other thing that sort of strikes me about this story is, I mean, you describe it as infuriating, but when you think about the shock uh, and suddenly you're let go from this employer simply because you're trying to stay in integrity with your values. Um, this this experience um, in a lot of ways uh, was traumatic. Uh, I don't want to speak on behalf of you, but um, you know, just hearing you tell this story a few times now, um, and it was also very painful. Um, and, and so I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that being an ally isn't always this gla glamorous um, experience where uh, people are painted out to be heroes in the story, um, but it is, um, it typically requires uh, a lot of difficult decisions and choices along the way, um, and in some ways, um, a lot of risks as well. Um, so moving on, so you are now um, terminated from the company and now have left the company. Um, what I also find interesting about the story is there's this significant gap in time between when the incident of the sexual harassment occurred, um, which uh, was reportedly occurred in um, October 2017, and when the company finally issues a, a response, which is nearly a year months. and a half. Yeah, nearly a year and a half later in April of 2019. So can you just sort of highlight what were the different contextual factors at play that finally elicited a response from this company? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting um, because, uh, you know, so after I, you know, I was fired, I looked at kind of legal options and, uh, and uh, and, you know, and it was a bit exhausting. It looked like I would, you know, I'd be spending a lot of money, taking a certain amount of risks uh, for relatively little money, it turns out. You know, the rules of at-will employment in the United States are quite uh, brutal. They're definitely very much in favor of, you know, whoever has deeper pockets. So I, you know, I gave up. I sort of took on some consulting work. Some actually, in fact, for Anaconda, my former um, employer from whom I was poached, you know, I, I left, I made sure when I left that I left on good terms with them. And I, I did some work with them. I did some other teaching work. Um, I found, uh, I set myself up as a consultant. I had some consulting projects and I was, um, and I was kind of licking my wounds. And I had no idea, you know, I, I guess I wrote um, a, a Glassdoor review at some point, 
Um, I did, and I just sort of thought, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that nobody went in there within, with the wrong impressions. And I read the, the terms of service for Glassdoor uh, for, you know, giving reviews of employers. And I read the legal, legal words around it. And I sort of figured out how to write a review that was the expressed one I wanted to say, say concisely. I, I even contemplated signing it because I didn't think, you know, I kind of, even though they, they're anonymous, I kind of figured like, I don't, I don't really care if they know what, you know, whether or not this is me. I think they, they probably did. Um, yeah, in fact, actually, I got contacted by Glassdoor. They asked me to take, take it down. They were contacted by DataCamp asking to take that down. And uh, Glassdoor reminded me that I'm legally responsible for whatever I say. And I replied saying, yeah, I know. So, um, and I didn't think anything of that, but it turns out that that review had, um, and a couple of other reviews are probably uh, written by other people who had had bad experiences with the company, had been read and uh, had sort of formed a pattern. And uh, there were a group of women called the R ladies. R is a programming language uh, in data science. And R ladies is an advocacy group uh, with some pretty amazing people in it. Uh, and they picked up these reviews and they sort of, and, and they guess had also heard through a, um, I mean, I think the, the, the target of the harassment, she was um, a member of the R ladies. And, and so through their own kind of whisper network had heard about what had happened. And so they, um, a number of them sort of on behalf of the instructor community uh, that collaborates with uh, DataCamp, they um, sort of started approaching them, demanding accountability, they, you know, and they kept getting blocked uh, by the head of people and also by the formula curriculum director who had now become a VP at DataCamp. Um, I, I think I probably helped her with that. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and they were kind of notable obstacles. And, and what had happened is by in, uh, and I had completely let this go and tried to get on with my life. And then at the end of March, early April, 2019, um, this letter had been, uh, uh, produced and signed by over a hundred uh, data camps instructors, demanding clarity over what was going, what had happened. And at that point, um, data camp responded with a public announcement, um, which uh, amusingly had been uh, attached with a no index tag. Basically, they they put this on their blog, and unlike every single other blog post they had done, they had put in a little bit of code to make this difficult to index by search engines to make it hard to find. So, um, so this actually um, uh, is what led to people getting very cross the uh, the R ladies community and a number of the instructors because that really came across as a, an article of bad faith. Right, uh, really that they weren't really dealing with people. And, and in this announcement, they sort of uh, used this uh, inappropriate dancing to try and uh, hide uh, and downplay the sexual harassment that had occurred. Um, the target came forward actually shortly after DataCamp's post. And, and then a, a whole bunch of the instructors um, demanded to boycott their own courses. Now, I mean, and this is a really big deal. I want, I want people to actually understand this, right? This would be as if, um, you know, uh, authors publishing with like Penguin or Random House or uh, HarperCollins sort of said like, we don't like the way that this publisher is behaving. Um, don't buy my books, right? Uh, this is the, th these people have invested a lot of time to produce these courses. They've invested a lot of their own association of their own brands and their own identity, their own professional reputations with this company. 
and they are saying we are and the way they get paid is through royalties through course completions so when people are saying you know uh, i mean there was i mean there was i think possibly dozens of them i don't i don't i didn't count but there were a lot of people sort of standing up and saying like don't do this uh, don't work with them don't take my courses until we get some clarity on this um now at the same time i think around the middle of april uh, 2015 and greg wilson and i both published short posts it's very factual, very clear. Uh, and this comes back to uh, what we've said about controlling the narrative. I made very clear, careful to state the things that I wanted to state clearly and tell my own story and in my own time and not give them the opportunity to do that. And I had the freedom to do that because I hadn't signed a non-disparagement agreement. Um, and this made them also look sketchy as hell. Um, our studio that same day, actually, uh, our studio, which is a company that um, some of the art studio, uh, the uh, instructors were affiliated with, that a lot of the art community looks up to, they had uh, a partnership with DataCamp that they broke off immediately. And then the press started picking up on this. Uh, the Business Insider, BuzzFeed, um, there was a really uh, good article by Davey Alba that was published in mid uh, May 2018, uh, 2019. Um, so at the end of April 2019, um, the CEO Cornelison stepped down um, uh, uh, without saying he was suspended without pay until they could actually get a third party review uh, to investigate what had happened. Um, and they formed a, what, an instructor advisory board very, using various people from the instructor community uh, to review the processes and basically sort of um, make sure help uh, cement goodwill with the instructor community. This was actually completely um, bad faith move as well because they ended up disbanding them in December 2020. I'll get back to that later. So these are the things that sort of led to this final, you know, 18 months after the fact, after this long stagnating period um, of the company, you know, due to public pressure from a community that you know that i was suddenly found i did not know existed i you know and i found a lot of comfort from some amazing people in that community when i um, met them shortly after that um, but that was what finally led to some sort of action on this in this instance which was kind of impressive yeah it's really interesting how um, it really took this um, advocacy group our ladies to mobilize over a hundred instructors, you said, yep. um, to sign this letter and really um, put public pressure on the company in addition to the press coverage to really put public uh, pressure on the company to be accountable. Um, and, and so it, it and it's only until then that you see a response from, yep. from the company. So given that all this has happened at this point can you tell us more about um the company's um response and the ceo's response to the sexual harassment um, incident involving um the employee that worked at the company prior to you joining sure so um so and and, and so i want to distinguish first of all the um, the sin of an individual versus the sin of the leadership of a company, right? And because, so one of the things I think that is um, deliberately, uh, you know, and uh, misdirected, misdirected in, um, in discussions about this by data camp is um, this 
perception that there is this single incident that happened that people are cross about, right? This harassment incident is what uh, is this one sin, and everyone, you know, and the, you know, and then their narrative about cancel culture and about the uh, the CEO being bullied out of his job, and poor them. Um, what they are neglecting to account for is what people are cross about is not simply that single event. What they cross about is everything that happened after the fact, because. The company cannot be held to account for the actions of one individual, you know, on a, on a dance floor one night. What they can be accountable for and they should be accountable for is every single thing that happened around a boardroom table um, in collective decisions made after the fact, because every single decision that they have made after that was showed a desire to control the narrative that they simply couldn't control. Like it was and it's just utterly foolish of them to attempt to do that, you know, given the fact that this was witnessed. You know, by my count, when I left the company, around a dozen people inside a company of about 70 or 80 knew what had happened, um, which means, and knowing simply the way human nature is, knowing the way secrets propagate, that means it was going to be known by a lot of people inside the company. And it also meant it was going to be known by a lot of people outside the company. Again, so when I approached my manager in June of 2015 about uh, discussing about how to deal with this properly and proactively, that was a responsible good faith action on my part. So I want to answer your question, though, about, you know, what they did uh, and in sort of some different time periods. And I'm sorry, this is going to be, a, I'll try not to get to be too long winded about this. So the first period, I'd say, is around January 2018, which is when um, the employee sort of filed a complaint. Um, their first response was to pull in uh, one of their investors. This is reported on their in their final third party report. Um, a third-party advisor, and they used someone who was an investor in the company, who's, which was a totally shady decision. Like that really showed, um, you know, a conflict of interest. Um, the the other thing I think that is uh, pretty shady as well is the the leadership, the uh, the executive at that time. The this three were consists of three co-founders, who were also the board of the co uh, the company. I, I believe at that time, I think there's one other of the investors who's who's on there as well now, but. Um, and so, you know, when the board decided how to deal with the recommendations from their, their so-called third-party advisor, who's one of their investors, um, I, I don't believe that uh, Jonathan Cornelison actually recused himself from that process, which is kind of like, um, uh, you know, um, process 101 kind of, uh, you, you don't have the person who is involved with any one of these complaints involved in the decision of choosing their punishment. Right. You know, the punishment that was chosen was ultimately a slap on his wrist. It was basically a limit on how much he could drink at company functions in a single day's, um, uh, a single day's uh, sensitivity training, which clearly wasn't very successful because his sensitivity doesn't seem to have improved much as a result of this. Um, uh, there, I mean, there are some other things that they've done, some fluffy, fluffy things about hiring a director of people and trying to target hiring more women. And all of this is um, really secondary, I think, to... Um, really concrete actions they could have taken. Um, I think the next thing I would say is, you know, apart from the other things I witnessed about the company culture, the slowly as I as I came to work for them, um, in the in the May 2018 um, work week, they didn't use any opportunity to address the entire company. Like this is six months after the original uh, work week, the last work week when this had happened. And, and clearly there were people within the company who knew what had happened. And they basically, 
the, the only thing they did do when they had us, you know, they had us uh, read um, <clears throat> uh, radical candor, which is ironic because I think that there's, if there's anything that the leadership has shown is that they have no desire for, for being told what to do by their subordinates. Uh, they have no desire for can actual candor from their uh, from their subordinates, um, but they didn't have. They had an opportunity when we were all there to really, like, honestly, sort of say, "Look, we screwed up. Um, this is the way that we're going to improve things," and and actually recognize, like, they had actually abused the the trust of the rank and file staff, um, and I think that was really a bad idea. I mean, in June of twenty eighteen, when they got rid of me and Greg in that like amateurish and, and juvenile manner, I think that was really sleazy. And I think that it really showed, uh, it really showed you who they are, right? The implicit message sent to the employees um, is, one of a, is one of a schoolyard bully, right? Like uh, threats of firing and litigation. They've done this, in, they've done this uh, numerous times from what I've heard from people inside the company, you know, complaining about, I, I've heard that uh, at, the, at the meeting where Cornelison had stepped down. Um, I'm assuming this is true. Right? I mean, again, this is secondhand, uh, but they they basically have threatened. You know, well, that David guy is sort of uh, is getting on thin ice, and it's uh, it's total rubbish. It's total BS. It's total rubbish. Right? Like they've uh, the only reason to threaten that at a company meeting in front of the staff is to basically make sure the company know to keep in place. And either yeah, you know, and there's only two logical ways I think I can conclude from that. One is that they're schoolyard bullies, sort of throwing their weight around deliberately to try and intimidate people into shutting up or that they're sort of petulant um you know reactive uh, oblivious children you know like toddlers who um who make these kinds of threats because they're not aware of the of how people perceive them and you know those are the only two things i can believe i don't know which they would prefer um so i don't know i mean i think that these they don't really clearly don't really understand the effects of their actions on, on uh, as leaders or, or maybe if they do um they just don't care um i think their responses in 2018 and 2019 um you know responding to the r ladies uh they were confrontational and aggressive which led to a lot of uh aggravation from them and that did not um cultivate respect or trust on the instructor community who were their suppliers basically um, that no index tag in their announcement is a clear evidence of bad faith. Um, their, uh, you know, I, and I think all of the things they had done at that point, nobody expected the third party review that they were going to make was going to yield change. All of us anticipated at the time that was announced in April of 2019 that uh, they were just going to uh, hire some lawyers to do this, cherry pick um, which stories that they were going to they were going to emphasize and uh and make sure that the narrative that they got from this uh and supported their uh supported the leadership which is exactly what they did um in 2019 october uh the only reason they didn't reappoint uh cornelison immediately in my opinion they kept on martin tuison as the interim ceo um you know they is because I think in September 2019, Cornelison wrote this embarrassing blog post um, that really showed that really rendered his apology of 2019 insincere. Uh, and I think it was sufficiently embarrassing that they couldn't put him reinstate him as CEO immediately because it really would have uh, pissed off people. So they quietly announced, you know, in 2819 October, they announced these um, uh, the report 
uh, the third party report and they doubled down on their uh, on the um, their inappropriate dancing narrative and saying that they're uh, complaining about how they had been unfairly represented. Um, and they uh, quietly in 2019 sort of said that Martin was going to stay on as the uh, as a CEO indefinitely. Um, the next thing that happened in July 2020 was they announced uh, out of the blue this intention to uh, threaten legal action against our studio for breaking up with them. Uh, this is just totally specious threat. Um, and, it, and it's funny, like that happened and, it, and each time they would reemerge in the, uh, you know, with the, one of these announcements, it kind of would re-traumatize me a little bit. Uh, uh, clearly the original target and I think other people who, you know, who just didn't want to hear anything about them anymore. Um, and it, this was kind of this specious threat claiming that our studio had manufactured this conspiracy against them, which is why people didn't like them. Um, and they, you know, people responded on social media. I responded on, on Twitter and I got this tweet, uh, and, and a bunch of other people from data camps, corporate, corporate council, sort of outlining, uh, this pathetic legal argument. Um, so in response to that, six days later at uh, SciPy 2020, I kind of gave a little talk, I gave a presentation, um, and I tweeted it back at DataCamp with the hashtag, bullies don't scare me. Um, but I think that it really shows a complete and utter inability of themselves to accept responsibility. They, you know, they keep punching down, they keep sort of throwing their weight around, and they've poisoned their own well. And they don't really seem to uh, show the intelligence elder maturity to understand that um, adults are not going to respond well to that kind of con that kind of behavior. Uh, you know, and I've spoken up about it. They threatened to sue me for defamation, and they can't do that. It's an empty threat. Um, I'll explain why perhaps later. But anyway, that is uh, you know an, a long laundry list of really foolish things they have done that don't uh, inspire confidence from adults. So again, you see this sort of re-emerging theme of the employer wielding their power to control the narrative um, and, and um, silence. <laughs> and control those, it badly. Yeah, silence those two um, of those they don't want to be included in their in their larger narrative. Um, one of the things that struck me in particular about the um, their third party report is um, they sort of, again, it speaks to how they controlled the narrative and what facts they emphasized and what, what were, what was underemphasized. Um, you, you made a reference to the inappropriate dancing narrative. Um, the other thing that came up that actually the victim of the sexual harassment sort of noted is how the company really, um, made it a point to underscore that the incident wasn't reported until several months after it occurred. Um, and, you know, it, it's ironic almost in, in sort of emphasizing that point, because in a lot of company cultures where it's instilling fear and bullying behavior, quite often those who've experienced some kind of harm don't feel comfortable coming forward and reporting. So it's it's sort of in a lot of ways not surprising that several months passed between the actual incident occurring and it being reported. It's total victim blaming. It's shameless. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's classic victim blaming. Um, so very recently, um, 
you know, this story keeps continuing to unfold, but very recently in December of 2020, um, the CEO was reinstated into his role as CEO. Oh, yeah. And so given this breaking news, what were your initial thoughts and reactions when you learned about this? Okay, well, uh, I mean, I was obviously pretty angry. Uh, so they, yeah, they reappointed the CAO, the CEO, they announced DataCamp 2.0, you know, which was in a way, you know, re-traumatizing the target and myself and other people. So it was, you know, it was, I mean, it's, it kind of, uh, um, it unambiguously shows again, the company, the leadership prioritizes the wealth of the founders above everything else. Like, you know, they may as well have put up a billboard saying, Hey, predators come and work for us because it really, um, shows that they don't take sexual harassment seriously. And, um, it really is frustrating just sort of thinking all that, that they all along, as people have predicted, they were going to just wait until people, their, their strategy is to sort of wait until the outrage dies down, wait till people forget, and then we'll quietly slip the guy back in. And uh, on a, in a sense, actually, I did commit, I have a little bit of relief because I, by that point, uh, Maloney, you and I had, um, you know, we'd accepted the offer to do this podcast. <laughs> and, and I was thinking like, you know, what, you know, am I going to look, uh, people going to say like, why are you still complaining about this, right? Like they, they replaced the CEO it says, well, no, no, now they've put him back in. So clearly that shows how insincere and, you know, what, how the bad faith with which these people have acted consistently. I mean, another reaction was the day of the, uh, the announcement, um, Anaconda, uh, my former employee from whom my employer from whom I was poached to go and work at DataCamp, they broke off their relationship with DataCamp. They had been trying, I mean, and, and I still have good relationships with them. Uh, they had been trying to sort of make that work and they just realized that like, okay, this is just, um, they did, they were staining their own brand basically by being associated with them. People were cross at them and they, after two odd years of like trying to give the leadership the, the benefit of the doubt, realized they couldn't do it. Um, the the dis, uh, DataCamp disbanded the instructor advisory board in, as part of DataCamp 2.0 when it with this announcement, um, which again shows that that was also a bad faith decision. They had no intent. They don't care what the instructors think. I don't think, I'm, I'm pretty sure the instructor is advisors, uh, the people who served on that board are under NDAs, sorry, NDA being non-disclosure agreement, not non-disparagement agreement. But maybe they're under those as well. Um, uh, but that's a confusing thing, the legal uh, acronyms that are overloaded. Um, I think one thing that's a little disparaging about this is realizing the funders just don't care, right? Like, I mean, the company, I mean, this is a company because it's an online company like Netflix or Amazon at the start of the pandemic, they've actually prospered, right? They've uh, probably, they're now at 6 million subscribers. And so they're um, doing really well. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, but it just really shows that there's no incentive uh, for companies to do, if the, if the VCs funding these companies don't care, uh, why the heck are they gonna change their behavior? Why the heck are they gonna do that? That has to come from us. It has to come from people who work in this, in this area and from consumers to actually provide the pressure, pressure to change. Yeah, it really sort of highlights how this um, tech startup is in a lot of ways part of a broader, um, tech startup ecosystem, which includes VC funding, which is in a lot of ways notorious um, for um, being male dominated. Um, 
to this day, the majority of uh, venture capitalists are men and largely invest in companies run by men. Um, and there's this always this emphasis on profit and growth and scaling as quickly as possible, even if it um, there's collateral damage involving the their workforce. Um, and you know, similarly, two percent of all VC funding goes to companies that are woman-led. Um, right. And so you kind of see this like broader ecosystem that sort of perpetuates this cycle of um, sexism that continues to pervade um, uh, within the startup ecosystem uh, and, and sort of, you know, foster this culture of um, great power imbalance and gender inequities. Um, so lastly, just thinking about this in hindsight and highlighting some of the key lessons learned, um, what do you think uh, this company could have done differently when responding to this matter? You know, what are some of the key insights and lessons other organizations and companies can take away from this story? So I think the, the key thing, and, I, and I've thought about this a lot, I mean, I thought about it a lot while I was there and it was difficult when I was inside the company because I had this, again, this weird self-preservation and conflicts basically by my own um, professional obligations in that circumstance. But the only way that they could have moved forward cleanly would have been to, uh, to remove Jonathan Cornelison from the CEO role immediately. Um, and I mean, there's precedence for this. Uh, so um, in June of 2018, Brian Krasanich, who was the CEO of Intel, uh, stepped down. Um, I don't know the exact notions of it, but it was uh, details around it. But I, I know he had had uh, at some time prior to that um, a consensual relationship with a subordinate. Um, a similar thing happened actually at McDonald's Corporation in November of 2019. Um, and Intel sort of very clearly st stood up and said, look, nobody is above the code of conduct in this company. Um, and in order to earn the trust of our employees and uh, of our greater com business community, um, uh, Krasanich has to step down. And, and Krasanich, and bear in mind, like this was a much, much lesser infraction. This was a consensual relationship with a subordinate that violated their, um, that, that crossed their uh, fraternization guidelines. Um, but Intel is a well-run company with competent, ethically responsible adults in the board. Uh, who actually are, are concerned about um, doing things properly and who had the authority to actually implement that change in that structure. Uh, Data Camp is nothing like that. And so they were not able to do that. And I, and I think that, you know, there's plenty of, of um, talk in the DEI communities, right, about how you have to get rid of predators to restore trust. You cannot have them around. Um, and it doesn't matter, again, I, as I said, like if I had done something like even as um, if I had done something like that in my role as a professor, I would have expected that would have been at the end of my of my job at that company, at that university in that context, because you have to do that. And they needed to beg forgiveness of the staff and promise to do better and not try and hide this. This was really, really despicable. Um, I think that they they also approached, you know, kind of box ticking approaches to diversity after the fact. Uh, I think trying to, you know, hire people on and, and you can't do it that way. You actually, this again is something that is well known. You have to have inclusion before you actually have 
you can build diversity because if people don't actually feel safe, they're not going to actually succeed. And this is a company in which they're ideologically motivated by uh, threats and bullying and intimidation to make people perform. Um, and I saw that actually in the way in their whole working culture. Um, you know, as it said, like four firings in six months at that company, this is ridiculous. This is not uh, competent leadership. This is not actually how you motivate people to get actually to get things done. And uh, the, I mean, I guess the pandemic is uh, they're still profiting and they actually feel that this is actually the thing that's important, but it's not actually going to do much for the uh, inclusion and the diversity of their company. Um, so, I mean, I think that at a kind of a corporate and organizational level, those are some lessons, you know, this is the kind of the, the, uh, the can do lesson about what not to do is you can look at this company as a, as a, as a model of how to do things badly. Which is why it makes a wonderful case study. Um, so lastly, just thinking about this from the perspective of you being an ally for gender equity, um, and when you reflect on your experience, what are the key lessons you would like the listeners to take away from the story? So I think, yeah, and I've, I've thought a lot about this as well. And again, this is part of the reason I want to share this stuff. And again, with the caveat that I'm, I'm aware I don't want to be taking up space that women can be talking about important things. I, I, but I think it is also important for men to, to actually speak out, you know, silence. Silence only benefits bullies, abusers, and other bad actors. And I think um, one of the lessons I learned in my negotiations is, you know, that not to sell my silence cheaply for, for an NDA. Right? Like, I think there was some back and forth about this. And they have been, they were quite uh, belligerent and uh, bullying in my negotiations with them through, the, through their corporate counsel. Um, I think another lesson I learned is um, not to underestimate the cost of silence to you as an individual. Uh, I've had, I've spoken to many, uh, I mean, and, and I realized again, this is, there's a gendered component to this too. Like I, I, I haven't had contact with a lot of women from the company. I haven't had, uh, I've, there's a, because there weren't very many. Um, um, the, the men I knew who left the company uh, since, I've talked to a few of them and it scarred them. And I think it was painful and it was painful for me while I was there and I think uh, a lot of men who are um, decent, caring people who want to think of themselves as allies, who want to think of themselves as decent people who want to, who respect women and just want uh, to to get along and uh, for everyone to prosper, um, they were confronted with this horrible thing that had happened and this horrible working culture, and not speaking out against it uh, actually scarred them. And, and I've talked to various friends, you know, one of my close school friends who works in a different industry in animation, he told, you know, when I was describing all of this to him, he was telling me about a story from when he was a young man where he, something terrible happened, happened in some sexual misconduct case. And he was young and he was early in his career and he wasn't, he was insecure about it and he didn't do anything about it. And he, he feels bad about it to this day. And I realized that, you know, when you don't do that, that actually has a cost on your soul that you really have to, and recognize that that is actually something when you're doing this calculus, you know, I think a, a third lesson I think I've learned is actually to assess risks and benefits uh, accurately and carefully. Because, yeah, I took a risk. I mean, I took a risk of getting fired. But I mean, when it turns out, like getting fired from that place isn't that bad. I'm so glad that I'm not dealing with this hostile company run by idiots. By uh, that um, now that I'm sorry, I shouldn't use words like idiots. That's a, it's a very ableist term. But, you know, by, but by children, right, who, who, um, 
if if I during the pandemic, uh, I think that would be really stressful for me right now. I think I'm at a I'm in a much better place, and I think that actually uh, it was actually not that much of a risk in the long term. Right? I knew I had career stability and ability to find work, and I I I even managed to find work with you know contract work with my former employer that I, I was poached from. Um, I knew that there were risks in them launching a slap suit, right, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Uh, but I knew those threats ultimately, and I've called them on this bluff a number of times quite publicly, and, and it really is a bluff. It really is, uh, and, and the reason why it's a bluff, I think, is because they, um, they don't have, uh, number one, I've, I've only been speaking the truth. If they were to go into court, um, I'm, everything I've said, I'm, I'm willing to say in front of a, uh, a jury, in front of a judge, under oath. Um, uh, but the other thing is that, um, you know, and the truth makes them look bad, right? Like they don't have the maturity or competence to actually understand that. But, uh, you know, the, <coughs> uh, the risk that I've taken as well, I think they, they can't go into court without actually going through a discovery process that actually would hurt them more. So I think that actually, uh, and I think they are, they're aware of that, their corporate counsel is certainly aware of that. And that's why, um, you know, when they do things like threaten to sue people for defamation on Twitter, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't actually send me a cease and desist letter on legal stationery. You know, they may as well have written that threat on crayon because it really shows sort of the, the, the kind of amateurish uh, foolishness of this company's leadership. Um, and I think that, I mean, a, a final lesson I think I've learned is to, you know, not to underestimate the power of rank and file. You know, I think the, you know, and we've seen this actually with uh, people standing up at Google and forming the Alphabet Workers Union um, uh, to stand up for tech workers' rights. Uh, I mean, I think if there's anywhere that needs a data campus is, is a company that probably needs a union, given the way, given the things that I've seen there as well, um, and their, their public behavior. Um, and I think that, you know, we have power when we actually stand together and it's, you know, I, I mean, I took some risks and it's, it's fine. It hasn't really hurt me that much in the long run. Um, and I'm not, I'm not bothered. I'm actually quite proud to be fired from a company where people don't have the, the competence or the decency to meaningfully say that sexual harassment is wrong. Well, David, thank you so much um, for taking the time to share your story. Um, you know, since when I first connected with you, I've just been inspired with the tremendous amount of courage um, that it took to do what you did um, and um, the message you're sending um, overall that um, hopefully at some point will have a ripple effect. Uh, for those who are listening, um, hopefully we'll gain uh, some key insights and lessons of how they can create um, more foster more inclusion and gender equity in their workplaces there are a lot of nuances and details to this story uh, that can't be emphasized enough and i know um, this podcast uh, wasn't didn't give enough time or justice to um, diving into all those so i just wanted to direct the audience that we will have a um a document available that sort of provides a, a, a one pager of the provides a high level overview of the key lessons that can be lifted from this case study. Um, and we'll also have the full case study available to be downloaded from the Mind the Gender Gap um, 
website during the week of the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. So thank you again for joining us. And um, we thank you, Maloney. <laughs> thank you, David. Did you have anything you else you wanted to say before? We no, close? I think that I've uh, I rambled on long enough. But, uh, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, be true to, your, to yourselves, I guess, right? Like recognize, you know, you the the importance of actually standing up for the things you believe in because you um, you will you will always do better that way I think. Okay. Well, thank you again, David, and thank you for all those who are listening. I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to be here and for being part of our 2021 podcast series. I especially want to thank you, David, for taking the time to share your story and for being an ally in the workplace. I also want to say a special thank you to our listeners for joining and also to our sponsor, Best Buy. To learn more, please visit www.mindthegap.org. New episodes of the Forum podcast are available at workplaceforums forward slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the local arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.